we're praying with him through, you know, the adjustment back home, but we're glad to have him. We definitely welcome him. Um, and it's good to be back with him once again. He's been with us before. So glad that he's able to bring his family back as well. So looking forward to what the Lord is going to share with us through him. Um, and I'll turn it over to him. Paul, welcome. Great. Right. Thank you. It's good to be back. I just I want to set myself up here. Let me just pray for us as we start. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your word and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we see the same picture of a loving God who wants us to be close, who wants us to know you, to walk in your ways for our own good so that we can have the joy and hope hope we can have the abundant life that you created us for and Jesus we pray this morning that you would come and teach us through your word help us to understand your great love for us and fill us with faith for the challenges that are in front of us Jesus we want our faith in you to grow and we ask that your Holy Spirit would come today and work that in our hearts and we pray this in Jesus name amen so uh, we've been looking together, this is my third time here, I feel really privileged to do that. Uh, we're looking at the book of Haggai, uh, if you remember. This is uh, the third sermon on Haggai. It's this tiny little book, you know, squeezed in the Old Testament. It's only two chapters long, but we squeezed three sermons out of it. Um, I, uh, uh, I was going to do two, but then there was just too much good stuff uh, in there. And so, uh, but today we're going to uh, reach the end of the book. And I think the Lord has it led me to it, I think has led us to it, because it is about Israel in the time of transition and in a time really of a rebuilding project. And we're in a rebuilding project here and in transition. And so we want to learn from what God was uh, saying to them during that time, the struggles they had spiritually, and uh, apply that to what we're doing today. Now... Um, the people they had, I'm going to review the story just a little bit. Let's see where we, uh, um, they, uh, you know, they'd been captives in Babylon and uh, some of them had come back to rebuild the city, right? And they had started rebuilding the city, you know, and they established their uh, houses and farms and commerce. And then they kept working and they kept working on their houses and God's house was neglected. They weren't rebuilding it. And that's where Haggai comes in. Haggai chapter 1, he comes in and challenges them and says, hey, you guys are just building your nice paneled houses. In those days, panels was like, that was the height of luxury. And um, you're building yourselves paneled houses, but my house lies in ruin. And the people respond in faith and obedience. They hear this word and they start um, building the temple. And so that was Haggai uh, chapter 1, and that is his first uh, his first prophecy. The second one, the second prophecy comes about a month later, right? They've just started, and uh, they've just started work on this temple, and some of the people are old, and they remember what the old temple looked like, and they look at the foundation and what they've laid, and they are underwhelmed. This looks so much smaller. It does not look very exciting. We remember the glory, and we've heard the stories of glory of Israel in the old days. And this isn't it. This, is, this isn't that great. This is pretty small. And they look at it and they say, we don't have the resources. I mean, when Solomon built the temple, he had David was at his height as his power, and he gave him all of these materials and gold and wealth to start, and they had all these people, and the neighboring king sent them uh, wood. And they are a small group of refugees. They don't have the resources, and they are starting this small project, and they're discouraged. And um, Haggai comes to them and speaks a word of encouragement. He says, I know, I know that it looks small, but God is going to do something amazing. It's his work. It's God is going to do something amazing, and he is going to bring the wealth of nations. It's not up to you to do that. You've got your task. You are supposed to work, 
but God is the one who's going to do something amazing. And I think this, this appeals to a basic, a basic drive in all of us, because we all, we all want to be a part of something that's larger than ourselves, more than we can do. We want to see something amazing happen. And that's what Haggai says God is going to do. He says, you can be a part of this really significant thing. God's glory is going to be displayed to the nations again through this temple and through Jerusalem. You can be a part of that. But you've got to have faith in God. Because they haven't seen it yet. You've got to have faith. Now, so they, they go and they've started work. And that is where Haggai comes in with his third and fourth prophecy. Okay? And uh, that's the context. They happen about a month later. Okay? And uh, it starts in chapter 2. Um, I'm so sorry. But that is the last sermon's um, PowerPoint. Yeah, can you, why don't we pause the tape, and I'm going to get you the right one, because it's right here. And I'm, uh, that's when you have uh, Haggai chapter 2 and Haggai chapter 2b. Um, you can make mistakes like that, although it's really embarrassing to do it in front of everyone. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why didn't everybody stand up, forget what just happened, and say, hey, let me interrupt you, Paul. Why don't you greet each other, and I'll get this to you. All right. Oh, I got it. Um, except... Didn't come turn on, so I will. I'm not quite sure how I did that. Ball go. Hey.
Okay. All right. We are ready to go. What a nice pause. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> now, the title of this sermon is What You Do Matters. And that is an awesome fact, but it's also kind of a scary fact. Mm -hmm. And I'll point out, what is it? It is the message of the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible. Because it's always encouraging us to acts of faithfulness and obedience because what we do matters. What we do matters. And uh, Haggai is going to make that really clear. And I was also just as, um, uh, I was really struck by how the themes of the worship uh, that Lucas put together uh, hit on a lot of the themes that we're going to be talking about uh, today and God's faithfulness and willing to, willingness to forgive. Now, Haggai comes in and, and speaks to these people who are in this rebuild project. They're struggling with discouragement. Um, and he comes and he gives this uh, third prophecy to them. And uh, to help us understand it, first I, I want us to understand some of the structure. It's there in verse uh, 10 to 23, okay? And in 10 to 23, he gives two separate prophecies. Prophecy number three and prophecy number four. So in, ten, uh, in verse 10, we have the 24th day of the ninth month. He gives a prophecy. And then in verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So two separate prophecies but on the same day. So we're going to go over them both. And it's important that verses 10 to 19, they're all part of one prophecy. It kind of hits on two topics, but it's all part of one prophecy. So we're going to take those two prophecies together and we're going to look at what Haggai says. Zoom out for me. Yeah. So this is prophecy number one. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now, for the ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries a holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now, this is, for them, just a review, right? These are basic, like, Sunday school level questions in purity. If you, uh, if you carry holy meat in your pocket and then you put something else in that pocket, does it make it holy? No, right? And if you are unclean from touching a dead body and you go touch something that's holy, or you, no, you just, and you go touch food, is then that food unclean? Yes. Okay, so he is not trying to teach them about these things. These are things that they would know. Um, but then he says, he makes really strong statements, hey, hey, this is you. You are unclean. And so all the work you're doing is unclean. Now that would like, that would get people's attention, right? Says, this nation here is unclean. So, now, what's he getting at? Now, I, th I think there, it's confusing when you read it because I don't think that he's actually talking about moving meat around. Um, but we don't know what specific situation he's talking about. Um, I think the readers of this, they would go, oh, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> um, and as I read different commentators, there's different theories. Some people think that it is about how they were transporting the, uh, the meat from the sacrifices. Uh, some people think that it has to do with uh, intermarriage. 
that uh, if you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, some of the people had gone and married people that were not Jews, who were not worshipers of Yahweh. And that was making them unclean. Um, but we don't know. It doesn't tell us that. It is lost. But I think what we do know, I think we know two things, is that the people who read this, they would have understood. They would have understood, oh, <laughs> yeah, we are, we are not doing this over here. Or we're doing these things wrong here. And so it's making us unclean. And God is saying, that's an issue. I think we would, they would know what it is. I think the other thing is, is that it, it comes with this really uh, basic message that selective obedience doesn't work. Selective obedience doesn't work. You can't say, hey, yeah, we're doing all of these holy things and doing these sacrifices, but then over here, we're touching dead bodies. Right? We're doing the holy sacrifices over here, but over here, we're touching dead bodies. Um, says you can do a bunch of really good religious things. But if at the core, there's something that's making you unclean, there's something that's keeping you from God, something that you haven't let Jesus deal with, someplace you're not letting Jesus in, that can make everything you're doing unclean. I think an illustration of this we can see oh, here's a, is in Isaiah 58. Now this is uh, one of my favorite chapters. We'll read verse 3. It says, Why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, this is the Lord speaking, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You see, Israel there, they were coming to God with these great, religious acts. They were doing the sacrifices. They were fasting. They were praying. They were saying, God, help us. And he wasn't answering. And they're asking, why? He's like, well, you're doing all of these religious things. But then, when you're not in church on Sunday or on Saturday, when you're not in the temple, you are, he is, in the chapter he is, you're striking each other with wicked fists. There's violence. There's oppression. They are exploiting the poor. It says, in the rest of your lives, you are not obeying me. Selective obedience, it doesn't work. They, they've got something. They are touching a dead body and it's making them unclean. And even though they are doing the temple rituals, that, that's not really what God wants. What He wants, the Scriptures say, is to obey is better than sacrifice. He wants obedience from our hearts. So, let's look at the second part of the prophecy. It says, But now, do consider, from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time, when no one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would only be ten. And when one came to a vat of wine to draw fifty measures, there would only be twenty. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet, you did not come back to me. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, that's the day of that prophecy, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit, yet from this day forward, I will bless you. From this day forward, I will bless you. Now, I want you to uh, notice the repetition of this phrase. Do consider from this day onward, or this day forward. Okay, it's repeated there in verse 15 and 18, because it's a really important phrase. He's trying to get us to really pay attention uh, to what follows and to that. And um, so I want to break it down into the two parts. One, he says, from this day onward. He's saying this day, and it's the day when they laid the uh, foundation of the temple, right? That day onward, this is the changing point. 
This is marking the difference. Before, right, he smote them. They went and tried to get 50 measures of wheat, and there was only 20. They went to, or it was 50 measures of wine, and there was only 20. They didn't have enough wheat. They didn't have enough wine. It was not what they expected. And uh, in chapter 1, they talked a lot about that, how the Israelites, as they'd been in their rebuild project, they had just not experienced the prosperity that they were thinking. And that was the challenge that God gave them. He said, come, come rebuild my house. Rebuild my house before you build your own houses and watch, watch me bless you. Whereas before, you had frustration and failure. If you put your trust in me and build my house first, then I will bless you. And it was that day, it was the day when they said they were going to do that, when they said they were going to seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness first and believe that all those other things were going to be added to them. He said, God is now saying, this is the day, from this day onward, I will bless you now that you've started the work. It is an awesome promise. But it's also coming with this warning. He says, do consider. He says it both times. And this is one of those things, I was studying it, and it, it's, it's easy to miss. It's hard to see in the uh, English. Uh, I've, I've pasted up here, including the footnotes here. It says, literally, it set your heart. Not just think about. Consider sounds like just think about it. But it is set your heart from this day onward. Set your heart from this day onward. Uh-huh. Before one stone was placed, another in the temple of the Lord. We want to set your heart. And it's really, it's like, please set your heart, or carefully set your heart, are the words. And Habakkuk is using some familiar words here from a really familiar verse. See, we are not Old Testament scholars necessarily, and we're not reading it in Hebrew, where the, uh, we're reading in English where the words are different. But These words are the exact same words that Moses uses in his final charge to Israel in Deuteronomy. Moses, as he's leaving, he's just about to die, he says to the Israelites, set your heart to do these words. Mm -hmm. See, I'll read it here. Moses said to them, he says, take your heart. Again, a different translation. Take your heart, set your heart. All the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. See, Moses in Deuteronomy uh, 31 and 32, he gives his final sermon, right? His final charge to Israel. And then um, at the end, he sings this song. And in the song, he recounts sort of the story of God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness, but then uh, God's desire and willingness to forgive them. And he says that you know, despite, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God is going to vindicate those who are faithful. He is going to come and rescue those who are faithful, and he's going to show himself to be God by gaining victory over all his adversaries. And then right after this, in the next verses in verse 48, God says to Moses, and now go up to the mountain that's overlooking the promised land and die. Those are the next verses. These are the closing words that Moses closes the Torah with. And so as Haggai chooses these words, he is sort of hearkening back to that sermon that Moses gave, saying, when he says, you know, I put before you this day life and death. Blessing and curse. He is calling back all of that. He's pointing at the Torah and saying that the discouragement, failure, and poverty that they were experiencing was not just a circumstance. It is exactly what God said was going to happen in the Torah if Israel turned away from Him. But to remember the promises to remember the promises that if they are faithful, God 
is going to meet them. God is going to do awesome things. He's connecting them. He's connecting what is happening to them now in their time to the teaching of the Torah and all of Israel's history. And the message is, the message is, our choices matter. God has given these great promises, but their choices matter. The message from the first part of the prophecy about transporting meat is that you can, you can do all of these good things, but if you're not obeying, truly obeying the law, you're not truly having faith in God, it doesn't really matter. Our choices matter. See, God, God is saying, I've made all these great promises, but if you don't follow them, if you don't live like they're really true, if you don't live your life like you're banking on God's miracles coming into our lives, then we're not going to see them. God has given us really great promises. But, and if we put our faith in those promises, and the faith leads to action, we'll see those great promises come true. But we can also, we can walk away. We can screw it up. And Israel, despite all of God's great promises, walked away and screwed it up lots of times. There's a big history of that. God is always faithful to welcome them back. He will always welcome us back. But we also see consequences of their sin again and again. This is, it's an awesome warning that he is giving the Israelites. Great promises. Hey, but your choices matter. Great promises. Your choices matter. It should, for us, it should be humbling and sobering and, and motivate us to faithful action. I think, I mean, I want us to understand uh, the subtlety of the temptation here. See, because we, we hear the gospel, we repeat the great promises, we comprehend the greatnesses of the promises, and we begin to think there's just like no way we can lose it. And there's no way that God's promises aren't true. They are always true. But we begin to think, oh, it doesn't really matter if I sin. I can do just, no one's going to see this. It's just this little thing over here. It doesn't really matter. God forgives. God does forgive, but there's still going to be impact from that sin. See, Israel, I mean, they understood their special position before God. And they were God's chosen people. And God had blessed them and done these amazing things that he hadn't done for any other God, for any other people. But they began to think that they just they couldn't lose it. And it didn't really matter that much what they did. They went chasing after other gods. Did lots of different immoral things. See, when we understand the height and depth and length and breadth of God's love, and we know that His promises are secure, His character is unchanging. But then we are tempted by the devil. We are tempted to think that the promise to get it, it's not dependent on our faithful obedience. See, God promises that His salvation is available to everyone, but He doesn't promise that everybody, everybody is going to be saved. He promises that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus will be saved. See, we get tempted to think we can divorce faith from obedience. Right? We think we can say, hey, I can have faith and be saved, but I really don't have to Obey. But Jesus teaches us, he, he teaches us that if we we're going to follow him, we have to be putting his words into practice. So, I want to give us a, a couple of illustrations of how this can work. Because, see, God has given us these great, great promises, right? He's given us these great, great promises and you think, hey, they are going to come true so it doesn't matter what I do. So, I want us to remember a story from the Apostle Paul. Acts 27. They do crazy things. They take a ship and they run it aground. <laughs> right? So that, uh, uh, we'll read part of it. But 
Paul is a prisoner. They are taking him to Rome and they sail off uh, towards uh, the wintertime trying to get to a safe port, trying to get there as fast as they can. And Paul says, don't do it. I perceive there's going to be like great injury, even loss of life if we do this. But the centurion listens to the sailors and not to Paul and they sail off and uh, they hit this really big storm. And uh, it gets to the point where the sailors are desperate and they are throwing the cargo overboard. And you know, when you throw your, the purpose for your going and all your money over, you know that you're, you're just you're worried for your life. And then it says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. Good news and bad news, right? For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom, angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all of those who sail with you. Right? That's a promise. It is from an angel through the Apostle Paul. Pretty secure, right? pretty secure. They go on, they sail along, and they get to this place, and they see the shore. And the sailors, who know what they're doing, go for the lifeboats. Now, there's not lifeboats for everyone, right? So the soldiers on the boat, and the prisoners, Paul and the other guys, they're all going to be left without sailors on the boat, which is a bad situation. Paul uh, sees this. He says, As the sailors were seeking to escape the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boat and let it go. So there you are. It's like, hey, here's this, here's this promise. But if those guys leave, that promise is out. <laughs> If we don't do something now, we're going to be in a ship in a storm heading towards rocks without any sailors. And we're not going to be saved. This is a theme we see in Scripture again and again. God promises to answer our prayers, but as we saw in Isaiah 58, if we're walking away from God with our lives, He's not going to hear us He's not going to hear those prayers. Now, God is not harsh. He is not cruel. He's not just looking for little things that we do to say, oh, you are disqualified. He is compassionate and gracious, patient and abounding in love. He is eager to forgive. And it's because He loves us so much, He doesn't want us to disobey. He doesn't want us to do self-destructive things. Everything that He calls us to do is for our good and He longs for us to step into that abundance that He has for us. I'll give you another analogy. See, God, God has promised to take us to heaven. And the analogy is He says, you want to go to heaven, you've got to get on this bus. This bus is going to heaven. Entrance into the bus is freely given. Don't have to give any money. You don't have to earn it. Everybody qualifies. Mm -hmm. But your whole body has to get on the bus. 100% of you. Not part of you. It doesn't cost anything, but your whole life has to go. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. And the bus... The bus, it's not a passive ride that then you get on the bus and you do whatever you want or you just sit in the seat and do nothing. The bus is a relationship with God. A faithful, obedient relationship with God. It is a life of faith and humble obedience. Living according to God's ways, which includes going to Him in repentance when we fail. I mean, that is built into it. That is built into our relationship with Jesus. It's not like, oh, I got on and then I failed once and then I'm off. It's like, oh, I got on and I failed once. I can go for forgiveness. That's built into it. God knows we're going to fail 
and he is super willing to forgive. But we need to repent and ask for forgiveness and work on changing. We have to be on the bus, living lives of faith, humble obedience, and repentance when we sin. If we rebel against God and remain in rebellion, then we're getting off the bus. God forgives, but that doesn't mean our choices don't matter. They have impact. See, in Isaiah 58, the people, they were fooling themselves. They were thinking, we're on the bus. But really what God was saying is, you stepped off the bus a long time ago. Or you, maybe you were never on it. Mm-hmm. They thought because we're doing these religious things, we're on the bus. Getting on the bus is free, but your whole life has to get on. It's not our effort, our merit, that gets the bus to heaven. We are not moving the bus. God is moving the bus. But we, there's still action we've got to take to get on the bus. Still action that we've got to take to get on the bus. So, the faithfulness of God's people is just, that is part of how God has chosen to work out His purposes on this earth. The faithfulness of His people. And when Israel is faithful, Israel experienced prosperity. People heard the word of the Lord. When Israel was faithless, they began to experience troubles. When we look at this, it's like, it should motivate us. It should motivate us to humility and action. Humility because it's an awesome responsibility that God has given us. And making us His children, making us people with free will, and making us people who make choices that have real consequences. Consequences for our lives and other people. We can be secure that our God is faithful and true to answer us when we pray, to forgive us, to save us, that He wants us to learn obedience so He can protect us from the negative consequences of sin. And it should motivate us to action. Not only because we want to get to heaven, but because we want to see the awesome promises of God along the way. We want to be a part of the awesome things that God is doing. We want to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. We want to see God's temple and God's house rebuilt. So, Haggai gives this word of warning, but then ends it with a promise. From this day forward, I'm going to bless you. From this day forward, I'm going to bless you. And then on the 24th day of the month, he comes with a second promise. It says, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. So, we want to remember Zerubbabel. It says there he is the governor. Right? So that means he is under the Persian king who has sent them back. But we also want to remember that he is uh, of the Davidic line. He is an heir of David. And so if they hadn't have been conquered, he would be the king. So instead of being the king, he is just a governor. Haggai gives a word specifically for him, but also like everybody heard it. right? He says, look, I'm going to shake this world order. These world powers who seems so invincible to you. I'm going to turn it upside down. I'm going to turn it upside down. I mean, Israel, it had the advantage and disadvantage of being on this great crossroads between major superpowers. That's great for commerce, right? And really bad because you are on the road for every invading army. So even if they aren't invading you, they're invading you on the way to somewhere else, right? And 
they had gone from being a powerful and independent nation to being sort of a footnote territory in the records of Persia. And Zerubbabel, uh, he was, instead of king, he was the government, uh, the governor. But God says he's going to shake that up. And as a result, he says he's going to take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring. That's kind of a, an odd image. See, the signet ring carried the authority of the king. And so when the king of Persia wanted to send orders and he wanted to prove it was his, he had this very fancy ring that you could make a wax seal with and there was only one like it. And so he was the only one who could do that. And so if you got an order with that on it, you knew that it came from the king. So it was a seal of the king's authority. And now, Haggai comes and says, Zerubbabel, you are going to be like a signet ring. Now, I'm not sure. It's like, what does it mean for him to be the signet ring? I think what it means is, is that he's no longer going to answer to the king of Persia. He is going to be like God's signet ring. He is going to be the sign and symbol of God's authority on the earth. And for the Israelites, that would mean a restoration of the right order of them being an independent country. Right? Ruled by God through the king and through the priests. So again, God ends with this awesome, awesome promise. That He is going to restore Israel and He's going to take their, the person who is the governor and restore his authority to be God's representative on the earth. See, chapter 2 begins and ends with these great promises. But there are things that there are things that the people haven't seen yet. They have to have faith. Right? They've got to believe that God is doing this they can start a small temple and believe that God is doing something much bigger. They can start with a governor and believe that God is going to restore His authority. They have to have faith. And despite their difficult uh, circumstances, God offers future promises for them and calls them to humbly trust Him and obey His instructions. See, it is great being on the bus with God, but you have to trust and obey. You have to stay on the bus. Faith for them meant putting, worshiping God first in their lives, and that meant not thinking about building their own houses, but building God's house. They didn't have enough resources. They were just a small group of people but it meant putting their faith in God's promises. Not just the ones they're hearing uh, from Haggai, but really God's promises throughout Scripture, throughout the Torah, that if, if you faithfully and humbly obey God, that He is going to bless you and take care of you. They meant, it meant believing God's promises despite their present circumstances. I think it means that the same thing for us. In the midst of whatever challenges that we are facing, that humble, faithful obedience, trusting that God is going to take care of us. That all of the things that we need are going to be added to us if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Oftentimes, we don't see results immediately. And that's why we call it faith. So we live by God's promises, faithfully obeying. And when we fail sometimes, we pick up. God is quick to forgive. We repent and ask for forgiveness. We work on change. But we live according to God's promises. So, you know, the hardships we face or unrealized um, hopes that we have, we need to take God's promises to heart. And there's a whole, a whole list of things where we struggle 
to really believe those promises. You probably have some really personal ones. But there's just some simple ones. Maybe it's just in daily prayer. Do you really believe that if you spend even half an hour, even 15 minutes, or even an hour with God, that God is really going to meet you? That He is going to transform your life? That He is going to give you joy? That He is going to give you spiritual power to impact people around you? Well, we know what we're supposed to do, but do we really believe it? <laughs> do we really believe that promise every day when it's time to get up or sleep in? <laughs> mm-hmm. Do we really believe that? Mm-hmm. Do we believe that God can do something amazing with our lives? You know, maybe there's a friend or a family member uh, that you've sort of lost hope that they will ever become a follower of Jesus, or give up some um, destructive life habits. And uh, you've prayed for them, but there's a way in which ah, it's hard and you're losing hope. And maybe there's some breakthroughs you need in your life. And uh, the Lord, you didn't see an answer immediately, and maybe you've, you've lost hope. And maybe it's just, yeah, it's that sense of intimacy with Jesus. Maybe you had it before, or maybe you've seen some other people and you think, man, they, they are so close to Jesus. They are hearing from the Lord and they are full of joy. And I don't, I, I, I don't think that's ever going to be me. Maybe you've lost hope for those things. So, what do we do? The Gospels are full of these awesome, awesome promises. They're full of awesome promises. But we've got to take that step of faith to get on the bus. So the first one, the first thing to do is how can I take steps to God every day? To go to Him honestly in prayer and just say, hey, these are the things I'm discouraged about. These are the things I've given up on. God, I do not want to pray about this right now. (laughs) Let's talk about it. Why I don't want to pray. (laughs) God, I prayed about this and you didn't do anything. Can we talk about that? And God, God's not afraid of our honesty. He's not afraid of where we're really at because he already knows where we're really at. He wants us to come to him. Mm -hmm. He wants us to really believe that he is gracious and willing to forgive. And he wants us to really believe that he wants us. He wants us to have that intimate connection with him where we hear his voice and we are able to bless other people with our spiritual gifts. So that's the first one. Just take steps of God. First God every day. Second is to take the charge of Haggai. Take the words of Jesus. Say, hey, I'm going to not worry about all my own stuff that much. And I am going to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness first. Let God take care of me. I'm going to work on building God's house first. And I know that God has my interest in mind. He is going to take care of me. And then third, we should do it as a community. and Love one another. The Lord, when He came and spoke through Haggai, I mean, there were times when He spoke to the leaders individually, but those words were also public. They were words to everybody. He didn't call them just as individuals to do it on alone. Hey, got it out. He called them as a community. We are supposed to do this together. They were supposed to stick together and encourage one another. We are supposed to stick together. Even in the face, even especially in the face of opposition. So, let's spend some time now as we worship in response. And uh, maybe he's been speaking to you. You know, there's something he's speaking to you. And you need to just take some time to commit yourself to that. To commit yourself and then to meditate on the promises that God has for you. Or, maybe there's some, something that he's convicting you of. There's a sin and you're just saying, I need to go to God in repentance and ask for help. 
I need to do that. And then maybe you need to just spend some time waiting on Him. Maybe He hasn't said something really specific to you yet. You just need to spend time waiting on Him, meditating on His uh, promises, and asking Him for you, hey, what, what are my next steps? How do you want me to step into seeking your kingdom first and your righteousness and letting you take care of me? So let's just pray together and then enter into a time of worship and just reflecting before the Lord. Father God, we give you thanks uh, that you are faithful, that your word is good, uh, that you have given us uh, an awesome responsibility where our choices matter, where our choices have impact, and Father, where uh, you are gracious to invite us into your kingdom, into walking with you, into uh, being with you in your mission where we can know you and we can know your purposes. And Jesus, I pray uh, that as we wade before you, that you would be speaking to us in our hearts. Uh, Father, filling us with faith for your promises and guiding us in the ways that you want us to step into building your house and being on your mission, walking with you in your purposes on this earth. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.